Hi, I'm Kes Otterleaf, and welcome to Margins and Memorations, the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. As I don't have social media, this is the best way for people to find out about me. And if you'd like to know more about my work, you can check out otterleaf.com. Otter, like the animal, L-I-E-F-F-E. And you can support this podcast at patreon.com forward slash otterleaf. In my second novel, Conserve and Control, I wrote about the damaging effects of the conservation industry, albeit a fictional and futuristic one. I've been fascinated by conservation since I was very young, and I was honoured to recently record this conversation with Samira Siddiqui from Global Environments Network about her amazing work in conservation biology, her critiques on some of the colonialist aspects of the conservation industry, and alternatives that she's been witness to. Samira Siddiqui is the Program Coordinator for the Global Environments Network. Samira is a conservation biologist focusing on marine and coastal habitats. Her experience working within human rights, environmental and social impact organisations, training in life sciences and experience with art and activism have positioned her focus at the intersection of ecology, social sciences and art. Her interdisciplinary and anti-colonial perspective is at the centre of her work, which seeks to disrupt silos between art, activism and academia. Samira is the managing editor for Project Myopia, an online magazine dedicated to decolonizing university curricula by crowdsourcing diverse material from students. Samira! Hi! Hello! Hello! Oh, I've been looking forward to this for ages. I'm so excited. Thank you. Thank you so much for um, inviting me to speak with you. It's been a long time coming, so I'm really happy to be here. Of course, thank you. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll start with my um, traditional question of um, where are you and what um, other than human nature is around you today? So I am in London, in southwest London, in Streatham specifically, at my parents' home. So I'm in um, a really comfortable and familiar place um, a lot of this place hasn't changed since I moved, since we first moved here. Um, and which plants and animals and other than human nature do I have around me? Um, so um, there's quite a few house plants. My mum my is um, a house plant obsessive like myself. And I'm sitting in front of a, a ficus. Um, a ficus benjamina it's um i think it's called its common name is the weeping fig oh, okay, yeah. there's an umbrella plant and um there's a cat around here somewhere uh, but my favorite other than human uh, nature around me right now is uh the fire there's um there's a little fire place here and mm. um don't get that in my home in Berlin. So yeah, being in front of a fireplace makes me feel super cozy. Yeah. It's so cozy. Oh my gosh. I really have such an image now of you in front of the fire. It sounds beautiful. Yeah. With all the little house plants. Mm, thank you. Um what about you? Where are you? Uh oh, oh, nobody ever asked me. Um, I am uh in South. Uh, left, what is that? West. Uh, Scotland, uh, in a valley. In front of my window, there is an Araucaria, like a monkey puzzle tree. Um, 
and uh, many, many sheep and crows and ravens um, and so many buzzards and um, funny little waders that I'm not quite sure what they're doing here, but I saw a wader today. It was like a Dunlin or something similar, but like we're quite far from the sea. Um, and I have been surrounded by chickens and a hyperactive puppy and some adorable cats. Um, and I'm having the best time. It's so beautiful here. Any like walk anywhere is just like, oh, what an amazing river. Oh, what a gorgeous waterfall. It's pretty beautiful. So I'm having a really good time. Wow, that sounds dreamy. <laughs> so gorgeous. Dreamy. It's like one of these places that you're like, I can't really believe this exists. Um, yeah, every day is just like, oh my gosh, what have you? Um, yeah, I know it's really, really good. Um, yeah, so would you like to tell us something about your work and how you got into it? Yes, of course. So um, I am a conservation biologist. That's been my training. Um, and I, I work for um, an environmental NGO. Uh, we work with uh, environmental change makers around the world and work with them to make um, flourishing uh, ecosystems and environments and communities. Uh, it's um, where uh, some of our work is, it's, it, we call ourselves a bit, we're everything ologists um, is because we, really believe in systems thinking and um, holistic approaches and really want to move away from siloed ways of working. Mm, right. So, uh, that's what I do. And I, I also uh, work for, I, I'm the, I work on outreach for an, an initiative called Project Myopia, which mm -hmm. works on decolonizing education. And uh, we do that by crowdsourcing narratives directly from students. So if you're a student and you see something on your, uh, see something that you feel should be on your curriculum, you can write in to Project Myopia, uh, writing about the piece of work, and it can be anything from literature to music, um, to the International Human Rights uh, Convention, and talk about, um, why it should be on your curriculum and uh, mm. how you engage with it. And it's a way of um, decolonizing edu education through um, with a bottom-up approach with the students contributing to the curriculum. Right. Is it quite a new project? Is that what I remember? So Project Myopia has been uh, going for five years. Mm. Uh, it, it was uh, founded uh, by my dear friend and peer and colleague, Rihanna Walcott, um, when she was a student at the University of Edinburgh. Mm, so it's okay. been five years now. Amazing. And how is it going? Uh, it's going brilliantly. Um, it's, it's, um, it's a steady uh, pace at which we work. Um, and we, we've got quite a few exciting articles coming up, contributions from students. Um, and um, one um, of the things that I'm most excited about is um, I, I joined Project Myopia because um, so at the moment it's got quite a 
a big arts and humanities focus. That's what most of our themes are. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, of course, a few uh, alternatives to that as well. But I really wanted to bring in uh, conservation into this mm. um, equation. And because I really, I, I've experienced both in practice in the workplace and also in academia, how um, siloed and divided um the ways of working are, uh, especially when um, the, it, it's on a topic which there are so many intersections with so many different fields of study or approaches and methods. Um, when I was at university, I always found that there was a, a bit of a division. Um, so I wanted to bring uh, conservation, decolonizing conservation into um into Project Myopia as well. Hmm. So making those connections that people haven't been making until now. Yes, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I really feel like storytelling and um, changing the narrative is Mm. the most impactful, important uh, ways of making change. So that that is the intention uh, behind it. And um, one exciting thing that um, I've been bringing together my two worlds of work at Global Diversity Foundation and Project Myopia. Um, so this year we uh, we won, and uh, we were one of the winners of. Um, there was a call, for an innovation challenge, for the future of conservation NGOs, um, okay. which was uh, in partnership with. Um, the Luke Hoffman Institute, um, uh, IUCN, um, and an an organization called Impact Hub. Um, So they issued this challenge and they wanted innovative solutions uh, for the future of conservation NGOs. And we pitched to them um, Project Invisibility, which aims to bring um, the invisible stories from the front lines of environmental change to the forefront and take them into academia. And it would we wanted to act as a conduit between frontline environmental change makers and academia where there can be such a divide, you know, with, with, um, with academic institutions being a bit of an ivory tower. And we can talk for ages about like um, at universities, it, you know, there, universities perpetuate um, class barriers and um, elitism and mm. universities are also the place where a lot of the a lot of the knowledge which informs practice is created right so mm. the aim is by bringing these narratives and stories from frontline environmental change makers to academia will make for more realistic uh, solutions um, to conservation, which are rooted in reality rather than uh, Western imaginations. Right, and I think there's, um, you mentioned decolonizing conservation as a term. For people who like aren't familiar with that, could you tell us something about that? And like fortress conservation is something we've talked about before as well, um, yeah. Yes, so, I'm, I have something um, written on this, which I'm going to just refer to quickly. 
so yeah, um, conservation means uh, different things to different people. Um, there's, you know, lots of diverse understandings of why, who, um, how and what to conserve. Mm. And um, it might be helpful if I share my definition of uh, conservation, um, where conservation leadership doesn't come from uh, from a, a top-down approach. Like it, the leadership must come from different and plural people and communities who are at the forefront of social and ecological justice. And uh, most importantly, in the locations which are the most impacted by conservation challenges. So mm. when I talk about decolonizing conservation, um, I, I really truly believe that um, the solutions come from the people who are who are at the forefront, and this is historic. There is, um, um, you know, the, the World Bank did this research on um, indigenous people wh where they live and where they are, and there's a, a statistic that where, um, let me find it. Sorry, you might have to edit some of my gappy bits. No Yep, so while um, indigenous peoples own, occupy, or use a, just a quarter of the world's surface area, they safeguard 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity. And they hold extremely important ancestral knowledge and expertise on how to adapt, uh, mitigate, and um, reduce climate and disaster risks, and at the same time, um, protecting biodiversity. So now that we know this, why aren't indigenous peoples and local communities the ones who are at the forefront of conservation decision-making? That is my big question. Why is it that, um, you know, I, I question that about myself as well. Like I live in, um, in between London and Berlin, and Frankly, they're some of the most emaciated ecosystems that you can mm -hmm. find. Mm -hmm. um, if if you compare it to where the world's remaining biodiversity is, so why are people from Europe, um, part which is a part of the world which has way less biodiversity, why are, are the decisions being made by by people from our part of the world? Hmm. That's a, a big question that I have. And uh, the decolonization aspect is important because we need to um, to look at, look in the eye, the disproportionate legacy of uh, Eurocentric knowledge. And by Eurocentric knowledge, I mean um, knowledge from Europe, which is it's considered the, the most important and the most um, at the, the pinnacle of knowledge. Um, and indigenous knowledge or knowledge from local communities is considered fringe or alternative or mm. on the side or, or um, indigenous knowledge is often seen as mythical or folklore. Right. And Eurocentric knowledge is seen as valid enough to be in mainstream education. Um, I, I think that that's unfair. 
Mm. And there needs to be a rebalance of the domination of European values and belief systems and carve out space for um, the culture, philosophies and traditions which has historically been shunned or co-opted by colonialism. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean... It seems to me that it like isn't an accident that that happened as well. I mean, it seems like an integral part of um, Western conservation, like particularly industrial colonial conservation, to have like constructed this idea of like wilderness that this like very beautiful places need to be protected and they need to be protected from people because um, there were never people there or something. And it, like this idea of fortress conservation, particularly of just like creating these national parks evicting indigenous people from their traditional lands and there's something i think there's like a that whole construct of of wilderness was kind of intentional it's kind of a land grab um so it's not that it kind of accidentally happened they feel like it was just like a direct consequence of colonialism in a way absolutely um it's uh, it's it's very it's so rooted with uh, religion as well, and I would mm. uh, I would say with Christianity um, and Islam. I can speak on those two because those are the contexts that are close and familiar to me. But there's always this um, concept that um, mankind is is the is is the top um, animal, and the earth, the planet is. Is our playground for our, our taking, and we, the, the, it's it, it separates people from nature. And yes, exactly as you said, this idea of nature being a wilderness without people, mm. whereas um, historically that has that has just um, ne never been the case. Um, as as long as as humans and as have been evolving, um, they have been actively shaping the ecosystems that they live in, and there is so much uh, evidence of this, despite the fact that the the alternative myth is um, is perpetuated. So, for example, um, the Amazon rainforest, which again is seen as uh, somewhere pristine, like it's wild, the, the jungle, mm. the forest without people. And um, the reality was that historically there have been communities living there who have been actively shaping the ecosystem through um, through methods such as agroforestry um, and uh, permaculture. They, these are all historic traditions um, from indigenous people. Right, so this idea of, yeah, this kind of pure and untouched um, ecosystem just was all based on a myth. I mean, it reminds me also what you were saying about storytelling and, and myth-making, that I, I feel like that's been an integral part of the industry as well, so that people can, um, yeah, people in those industries can be can kind of justify their actions. I mean, I know it's also a big thing when uh, people will be like, oh, yeah, but like people are coming and they're like burning down the forest or there's like poaching and we just need to build the fences higher and that will somehow, somehow solve things rather than actually like getting into the politics of why people might be doing that or might need to do that. Or, yeah, I think particularly poaching is, is a big one when people have been evicted from their lands and they have no other choice but to poach, for example. Um, it's, yeah, it all just seems kind of 
a self-replicating story or something. It's like, ah, yeah, but look, now now these people are like burning down forests. It all just seems like built on racism. Like people just like don't know how to protect their own lands or something. It's exactly that. And as you're mentioning this, I'm, I'm remembering um, some research by um, uh, one of my professors uh, from, from where I did my master's at, at the Uni of Sussex. So this is Professor James Fairhead. Um, and he did a lot of research in um, Ghana and Guinea in West Africa. And the situation was exactly as you described. So they were um, indigenous peoples in, in Ghana who had a practice of burning back the forest. And mm. um, the, the European, uh, the colonizers who were there at the time saw this and were like, oh no, what are they doing? Look, they're destroying the, the forest, like they're, they're burning it, how horrible is this? And they created, they were trying to um, create fortress conservation. So uh, putting up walls, fencing off the nature and and um, displacing the people who live there uh, from their ancestral lands. And then uh, my professor uh, did, uh, ongoing research on this project and they found that the burning back of the forest was was actually um an an indigenous methodology of growing right. the the forest um there was a the small um the small term impact of of burning the forest but over time it, the that was beneficial for that that mm. ecosystem and it the forest would i can't remember the specifics of how um but the forest would grow back um stronger better more abundant because of these practices and this method was something that had been being practiced there for um a really long time historically um probably hundreds of years and then when european colonizers came over into an ecosystem that they have very little understanding of they didn't understand and therefore they tried to to ban it yeah it's again this idea of like protecting something conserving something without humans imagining that like i don't know that it isn't a human influenced environment but it's like what you're protecting is already a human influence mm -hmm. since the beginning of time um so yeah just some myths but it's also i mean i think there's also like an implicit um double standard as well because often in national parks it's like okay not these people they can't be there um but uh tourists are fine or researchers are okay um like certain people can be there colonizing people uh but the people who actually created that environment and have been there since the beginning of time cannot and this it's just like it's just kind of clear um that double standard but it's something that yeah isn't often talked about somehow or at least uh yeah in the west mm. And I, I remember um, when we talked last time, there was, yeah, because um, you were mentioning like the, uh, how do you call it, environmental change makers? Is that yes. the term you were using? Um, like on the forefront and who are like, yeah, being silenced and like not, and obviously like not in that conversation um, and are being like intentionally marginalized from that that. Uh, conversation that also reminded me like yeah that people did this big research and they discovered that oh actually indigenous people are like a part of the land and it's like well I'm pretty sure everybody knew that um in a way and I'm sure those people knew that and have been like yeah resisting colonialism in all of its forms including conservation and I remember we had the analogy in the last conversation about 
um, like sex worker rights and like nothing about us without us, this idea of, mm. yeah, sometimes there can be a huge study and people are like, okay, we've invested all this money and we've done this big research project and we've written all these papers and it turns out that um, criminalizing sex work is bad for sex workers. And we're all like, wait, mm. <laughs> no, really? You did all that work and you could have just asked us. Um, and I feel like, yeah, some of the work you're doing just sounds like it's really like reversing that. It's like, okay, we're going to start from there. Like, let's start with like what people already know and yeah, break some of those myths in a way. Definitely. Yeah, there's, there's always when there's always this knee-jerk reaction, isn't there? When something isn't un understood or uh, it's it's too complex, the solution is always ban it, put up a fence mm. around it, um, put them in jail. And it, that's that's always the been the first mode of uh, action. Um, mm. And you, you see that so quite recently as well. Like there have been um scandals with uh, organizations such as wwf um where they were um let, i'm just uh, collecting my thoughts i say this right before i like get sued for slander by wwf <laughs> or um so they would there are, are projects on things like uh, illegal wildlife trade or poaching or or human uh, wildlife conflict um where western ngos were found to be complicit in helping to police some of those sites hmm. so they you know they would be working with um the police or the military or um or groups armed groups basically who were there to to manage the poachers and there have been incidents where uh, indigenous people and local communities have been killed because mm. of these actions um and so um i i uh, was reading recently that th th this was a, a big case and the um the big western ngo in question was actually absolved um from it and they they managed to not. Um, they managed to, to displace the blame, basically. Mm. But that, you know, they were able to absolve their name, but they were still the institution that was calling for the um, the militarization of of these areas. Right. Yeah, as you say, there's the knee jerk reaction of like criminalizer thing. Um, I feel like it's also, it can be a strategic one. In, in that case, I'm not sure, but like, it reminds me of like hate crime law that that's often like when people learn anything about, I don't know, like a transphobic attack in Berlin or something, the first reaction that a lot of, um, I, I don't know, a lot of people, but a lot of people with a lot of power um, will come up with this like, okay, yeah, we just need more hate crime laws. That's that's the solution to this thing. We're not going to look at anything systemic. We're not going to look at transphobia. We're not going to look at any kind of institutional. We're not going to look at anything intersectionally at all. Um, mm. What we probably need is more people in cages and more criminalization. And if that happens to be in a neighborhood where we were criminalizing people anyway, then all for the better. And it, I feel like it's all just kind of um quite 
uh, strategic in a way. It's like, okay, well, this is a great solution because this is what we wanted to do anyway. And if um, it means that um, Western NGOs can occupy a bit more land and um, criminalize the people that they wanted to criminalize anyway on some level, then uh, it kind of works. <laughs> exactly, because with criminalizing something comes more surveillance, more policing, right. mm. uh, more arms. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? How all um, roads point to that one for right. um, in good old capitalism. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, conserve and control is what I'm thinking about. <laughs> Why I put those two words together, it, it does, it is like it's part of a package. And it's easy to kind of, I don't know, I've often felt when I was learning about these things for the first time, I was like, oh, so it just kind of went wrong. Obviously, like, the intention was good, but, you know, it just got a bit messy or something, or it's just like something went a little bit awry. It's like, no, this was maybe the plan all along, in fact. Um, and yeah, I'm kind of like quite cynical about it, I guess. I'm often just like, no, that sounds like colonialism. That that seems like that would fit that that whole project really well. Yeah, you and me both cares. Um, mm. Sounds like it. Yeah, it's it's a um, becomes a manufactured crisis. Right. Mm. Yeah, but there are um, movements to actually um, conserve non-human nature and human nature and all the rest. So, like, what what are the alternatives to this trash fire of <laughs> the conservation industry? Like, what, what are the good stuff? I think I feel like you you're the person to know about those things. So, um, one of the um, the solutions and alternatives that we've been um, practicing at our work is working um, on cultural landscapes. So um, uh, that means looking at a, a landscape and the culture as being indivisible, they come hand in hand. And um, we um, at Global Diversity Foundation, where I work, one of our most active field programs is in the High Atlas Mountains, where we work with uh, we work with rural communities to um, not just revitalize their traditional practices, uh, but sustain their livelihoods and restore nature. So, um, for example, in um, in Morocco, in the High Atlas, um, there is a, a nomadic community called Atta, and they. Um, for hundreds of years, this, these nomadic pastoral uh, communities practice something called transhumans, which um, is practiced in loads of parts of the world. Uh, we, we're looking more around um, um, in the Mediterranean, um, but it's a practice of, um, of, of taking your, your grazing animals and um, working with the land and in ensuring that um, the biodiversity th that is there, the, the plants, the botany um, is, it, it is, is there, it's, it's fed on by the animals and it's, it's maintained in that way. And so it continues uh, to be present for um, future generations of nomadic pastoralists as well. Mm. 
So we um, work on biocultural diversity and we document and um, conserve the in and conservation in the Moroccan high atlas and um, uh, also working with uh, local communities and indigenous uh, communities there to uh, create vibrant economies, alternative economies, which are not extractive, which um, practice things such as take what you need, leaving leaving behind um, most of, of the, the plant life, the wildlife there, so that it continues to be present for future generations. That's amazing. I think the economic part is such an important element as well that like, yeah, in terms of like sustainability, in terms of, and just in so many ways that all makes sense. Like it's really kind of, it felt, sounds really integrated, like kind of doing all the things that need to be done. It's not just kind of reducing it down to just like one element that someone cares about. It's like making it kind of connected in the way that the things that we were talking about before are not connected. Is that right? Hmm. Yeah, it, it it is. It is all connected because these this isn't just biodiversity conservation. This these are um, people's um, livelihoods. They're mm. people's um, uh, historic traditions, and it's um, it's all regenerative. They're regenerative um, agro pastoral activities. So mm. um, in in Morocco, uh, we work with. 200 rural cooperatives and most of them are uh, women-led and we're trying to pioneer a movement to improve livelihoods by um, with innovative production and with marketing of uh, things like local cosmetics or crafts or culinary goods um, while conserving the biodiversity and cultural landscapes of, of the high atlas so mm. um, that can be done through uh, things like uh, seed saving, uh, knowledge sharing, um, uh, transplanting uh, indigenous plants, uh, growing in like uh, growing more sustainable communities, populations of um, endangered plants uh, in the high atlas in nurseries, and then uh, using them to 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 continue populating um, the 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 endangered plant species. Hmm. I mean, it sounds amazing. Um, you were just there, right? Would you like to uh, tell us about how it was to be there? Yes, absolutely. So um, um, this was my uh, first time uh, visiting our field sites in Morocco. We have um, an incredible team of um, uh, my, my colleagues uh, who are Moroccan and they're, they're um, um, their backgrounds are in food science and technology and uh, in policy and they're, they're, they're a Moroccan team and we work uh, really closely with a, a Moroccan um, organization called the Moroccan um, Biodiversity, wait let's say that again, yeah the Moroccan Biodiversity and Livelihoods Association MBLA so that's a local non-profit just staffed by young Moroccan professionals and uh, th this was my first time visiting these uh, field sites, which have been uh, uh, functioning, thriving for about the, the last um, five to seven, five to ten years. Um, and the the High Atlas um, is 
absolutely extraordinary. It's um, just outside Marrakesh. And um, they, it's, they are uh, rocky mountains, which are um, ab abundant with like lush green. Um, it, it was absolutely beautiful being there. And, and there's, there's a lot of um, uh, sheep and goats uh, grazing everywhere, which was mm. really lovely to see. Uh, reminded me of, of home in the UK as well. Right. Um, and we went to visit some of our field sites. So one of them is a, it's a school called Dar Taliba. Uh, and it's a school for, for girls where um, young women from the High Atlas uh, come for um, education and there's a lot of vocational education there so there's uh, activities on uh, seed saving or sharing knowledge um, and uh, so we went to visit the school and then we went also went to visit um, uh, and one of our nurseries which is in Okemden which is a part of Morocco which um, it's it snows there and it's got a um, uh, I think the only um, ski resort in in Morocco as well. Oh wow! Okay. Um, yeah, so it it was really amazing to see the Heartless agro ecosystems there and um, the regional biodiversity and um, seeing traditional knowledge and practices being um, given so much precedence. And it's it's always uh, participatory approaches. So the the solutions are always coming from the people who've historically held them. Mm. Mm. Um, I mean, it sounds super inspiring. Are these the things that kind of inspire you to to keep doing the work that you're doing? Because I can imagine that it's quite difficult sometimes. Yes, absolutely. So in in the high atlas. Um, the the in indigenous people in Morocco are the Amazigh, um, and the, they are, are farmers and um, the nomadic pastoralists who um, live not just in the the high atlas, but uh, the, these are the, the the localities our projects, our, our field programs are in, um, and they work in these communes. Um, of Ukemden, uh, where I just mentioned, uh, Imegdal, uh, these are some of the locations. And it's their traditional knowledge and practices which are being implemented to improve um, agricultural productivity um, and maintain the, the biodiversity mm. that's yeah historically been cultivated by these communities. Um, and yes, to, to go back to your question, um, uh, absolutely. So um, when, when I first uh, learned about the, this, this statistic about how 80% of the world's biodiversity exists in the same places where indigenous people live, that this has been the biggest question that I've been asking, why aren't these voices at the forefront of environmental change? Like when uh, we we saw um, at COP in um, Egypt just last month, um, that we were seeing all of these photographs of, of, of 
of um, our world leaders who had flown there on private jet at this conference, which was being sponsored by Coca-Cola. Right. And nobody, um, you know, amongst other brands, um, uh, not to single out Coca-Cola, but a lot of people were asking the question, oh, look, there's there's not enough people of color there in this group, or there's not enough women. And I would say we can go even further. Where are the indigenous people in, mm. in these photographs? Where, where are their, their voices? Are they being heard? When, when we know that the world's biodiversity, 80% of the world's biodiversity exists in the same places where indigenous people are, that, that to me is is a is a no brainer. Mm. So in, in my work, um, and what when I talk about decolonizing conservation, um, in indigenous knowledge um, is, I would in my view the most important uh, solution for the future of conservation. And um, alongside that as well. Um, I have been learning more about transformative justice recently, which is, it's a, a political framework and approach to to respond to violence, harm and abuse um, historically. And I, I've been applying these concepts to conservation. So how can we move forward in conservation without creating more violence or by engaging in harm reduction to diminish the violence? How do we make sure that the harm stops? So when, I, when I'm when i thinking about uh, the High Atlas Mountains, uh, the Amazigh communities that have been working with the land for hundreds of years, yes, that, that really instills me with, with hope and optimism for the future. I love that you made that connection. My my <laughs> mind is a bit blown. I'm like, yes, of course, transformative justice and um, community-led conservation. Of course, those things go together. Um, that's such an interesting, yeah, what a connection. Yeah, it's um, it, it, tra- transformative justice. We've been we've been seeing that applied to so many other um, aspects of social movements. Um, and it, it's it's been a useful framework for me to apply to to conservation mm. as well because yeah you know we we've we've talked about how conser- conserving nature isn't just nature without people nature and people go together so yeah it's um the transformative justice it it, it needs to be implemented there as well. It's really powerful. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, any um, other projects that um, you'd like to shout out? Is there any, like, imagine you're, like, listening to this and you're, like, learning about all this stuff for the first time. Like, is there anything also um, that you'd want people to kind of take away from this conversation or anything? Yeah, the places that people could learn more, um, uh, projects to support. Yes, definitely. So um, the um, organization I work for is Global Diversity Foundation. Uh, I will share with you links of how to read more about our work. 
Um, there is a, a brilliant documentary as well that has been made by um, one of my colleagues and team members, uh, two of my colleagues, uh, Elif uh, and Inanch, and uh, it's called Ait Atta, and it's it's about this these Amazigh, um, one of these these Amazigh communities, uh, which practice uh, nomadic pastoralism and um, agdals and terraced agro ecosystems. So that is that's one to watch as well. And we, we're really big on our, our storytelling. So um, you can follow us on our social media accounts, uh, Global Diversity Foundation on um, Instagram and Twitter, LinkedIn. We have a newsletter as well. And then there, of course, there is a Project Myopia as well, where um, we're making... Um, it's it for me. It's it's grassroots change that we are seeing, and um, over the past five years, we've seen a big um, impact in in practices at the universities we work with, um, and the work of Project Myopia has ended up improving um, aspects of student welfare as well, and it's a more participatory method of decolonizing the curriculum from the grassroots up. So I will share the links to both of those and um, and on, and ways to connect with me as well. Um, if if anybody, if this anything I said resonates with people, uh, please do reach out. Um, I'm, I'm so deeply passionate about this and would love to keep talking about it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad we had this conversation. Um, and yeah, I really appreciate your work. I really appreciate you. Thank you for finding the time for this. It was really beautiful. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that, yeah, we've, we've finally spoken about it. And this is um, this has been one of the things that have brought, has brought you and me together as well. So I'm, I'm so grateful um, to mm. you. Um, everything that you do and have so much love and respect um, for you and your work as